Welcome. You're listening to Sanseet. Where you'll find everything to do with spirituality, life lessons, holistic living, and medicine. To become your true self. We all have stories, journeys, experiences, and love. Here's your host, Erin O'Dowd. Hello and welcome. On today's show, our guest is Donna Marish. She was recommended through another guest that we had in the show recently by Phyllis King. Donna is an extraordinary person. And hello and welcome to the show, Donna. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Describe to us how you got involved in um, in psychotherapy. You know, truthfully, I just think it's a what I would call a cellular calling. I don't even know if the pathway was really conscious exactly. I believe it was a calling that there is much in my deep unconscious from other lifetimes that weren't necessarily about being a psychotherapist, but drawn to healing. So there's that, and then there's the things in our lives that push us. There were certainly difficulties in my early life, you know, blessings and difficulties both that I think influenced me. But I think as a small child, was very sensitive and had empathy easily for other people. And I remember going to a reunion, a high school reunion, and there was someone there who I hadn't seen since I was a very young child who had I had also go to, gone to grade school with. And when she asked me what I did for a living, and I told her, she said, oh, that totally fit. She said, I remember when we were in third grade, and my brother was diagnosed with some awful disease. And she said, you were so empathic, so kind, so caring. She goes, I'm not surprised that that's what you ended up doing. And when she said that, that gave me a reflection that I really hadn't consciously had, that just that sort of emotional, that I resonate with other people's emotions. I guess what I'm saying is I, we want to think that we make these decisions, but I, I think it sometimes our professions pick us <laughs> in a way. Do you think it picked you? I do. I, I, I think it was already sort of going to happen one way or the other, sort of like the divine dancing through us, and we hear the call, and I think I heard the call, and things just lined up like I... One of my early jobs was I worked for Suicide Hotline, really in a secretarial. It was supposed to be a secretarial position. I hardly ever did one ounce of secretary work from the moment I got there. I was sort of thrown into doing the actual work because they didn't have enough coverage and it's a 24-hour service. <laughs> so it was trial by fire. And that was sort of the beginning of my professional work with psychotherapy. Tell us about what was it like to work with people with suicides. Uh, I think it's some of the best training I ever had, to tell you the truth. I don't know if you know this, but really the hotline approach was invented in England. They're called the Good Samaritans, and it really is a worldwide phenomenon now. Uh, and the center that I worked for was one of the early adopters in the United States. It was in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and they had a very good training program, luckily. 
And uh, so what it's like is you get anything and everything on those hotlines. And of course, as mental health or hospitals closed down, more and more people were on the streets without care. And so because it's a free 24-hour service, we would get calls from people who might normally or in the past might have been treated through state programs who were not getting treatment. So you could have in any given night or day, you could talk to somebody who was gravely mentally ill, psychotic. Of course, you get people who call and misuse the line, like maybe somebody who really, uh, you know, is misusing the line for their own purposes, maybe making a sexual call, and but you get everything and anything. And so the upshot of that is you learn how to deal with a lot of people who have a variety of issues and diagnoses. And it's all non, it's mainly non-professional, and so you're not trying to diagnose and you're not trying to do long-term treatment. It's really crisis-oriented or support-oriented. How did you feel doing this work? I liked the work in terms of, um, I mean, I had a lot of different kinds of responsibilities. I trained other people, which I liked a lot. I supervised other people. Eventually, I created a grief counseling program for survivors of sudden traumatic death. And that's another thing. I've always been interested in life after, after death. Even as a small child, I had kind of an interest in that. And so eventually, there was an opportunity. Um, my boss at the time said, sure, if you want to create that, you can do that as long as... As, as long as you do your other job too <laughs> and uh, and so I did and that program's still going but that really strengthened my spiritual quest um, I think that was a huge step more into my work eventually becoming more and more spiritual because if you work around death and dying and not just crisis but death and dying inevitably you have experiences with people that have to do with life after death even if you're a non-believer if you hear it enough from a credible client you really start to get affirmation that there's something more than our physical life what fascinated you about the life and death well as a small child um it's sort of hard to really pinpoint it exactly my mother had some psychicness in her family and people had experiences with people who were no longer alive she shared those with me and as a small child that fascinated me I just believed it it just seemed real to me and then there was one time when I was about eight or nine I had a spontaneous out-of-body experience <laughs> and uh, it only lasted maybe a few seconds but I found myself standing next to myself in my bedroom just for I don't know maybe 10 seconds or something and you know I didn't know what to make of that and then later when maybe in my early 20s I had an out-of-body experience too that was much more profound so I, it just sort of told me in a very visceral way that we're not just our bodies, that there is a being self is beyond the vehicle of the body. 
And so this idea that there's something that persists after the physical body is no longer here just fundamentally made sense to me. It must be interesting where you're analyzing the, the mental aspect and you understand the physical through that experience. Again, probably a gift, I believe. You know, I, I think it just, there. I think a lot of times there's no accidents. I'm not saying there aren't accidents in the world. There are accidents in the world. But I'm saying there are some things that are just the divine dancing through us, you know, just, that, that come unbidden and have a an opening effect on our whole being. They, it gives us motivation, gives us insight if we're paying attention. Working with the, the grief program and the hotline, did it yes. open your awareness to the area of spirituality regarding death? I think it did. I think that interest was already there. Like I say, having my mother be somebody who talked openly about life after death. I mean, she wasn't obsessed with it or anything, but it would occasionally come up and, you know, that opened me to those ideas early. But definitely working with people and it was only maybe in my experience a handful of people who would report having a spontaneous after-death communication with a loved one. What was very notable is the people who would have these, first of all, they were just credible, down-to-earth people. You know, I can remember some of them and think these were not people who were prone to fantasy. And so when they would describe the story, it was just very affirming. And But the key thing is their grief would completely disappear, which is phenomenal. So healing when people have these after-death experiences with their loved ones. There's that pain when we have grief, and the pain is really when you boil it all down, it's about disconnection. It's about being disconnected from someone you love. And when someone has that spontaneous experience, whether it's visual, auditory, kinesthetic, whatever it is, it reconnects the person and it affirms that love really never dies, that there is this connection that goes on and on. And sure, they miss the person, and they wish they were in their physical form, but there's something very healing about knowing that person is still, while they're not in physical form, they still exist in some way. With them existing, that's probably why they probably can't disconnect from that person. Unless the person who's left behind know that the, the being, whoever that, you know, their husband, their child, whoever it is, that they still exist in some form and that they will connect again. That's often in the message, is that that love prevails beyond the veil, is how I like to say it. That's a beautiful quote. Tell us the meaning of what it means to you. It means that love is the great connector beyond physicality, that it's eternal, It's it exists beyond <laughs> any circumstance. It's a very high vibration. It's my belief that when we're in grief, that's a very low and slow vibration. And when we're so distraught and that person is not embodied anymore, they, they vibrate much faster. 
when they're not in a body. It's very hard to bridge that high vibration when you're not in a body without low and slow vibration of grief. So there's a lot of research on after-death communication, which is spontaneous. The most common after-death communication is when someone's asleep and the deceased comes to them in a very uh, lucid dream. It's in a dream state, but it's not really a dream because a lot of times the messages are so, um, in the person's communicating, like, but well, it's sort of hard to describe. I'll give you an example. Like, so maybe it's a wife, she's lost her husband, and maybe there's an important document and she can't find it. And the husband comes in a dream, affirms his love, but he also gives her an important piece of information that the wife doesn't know and can't possibly know. It really is coming from that other being. And what I'm saying is that that doesn't happen a lot, but the communication happens a lot in, in a dream state because the person is not consciously holding on to their pain. They're more open in a dream state so the person can come through. It, it's like when we get a brainstorm, a lot of times it's in the shower or on the toilet or we're in the garden and we're not thinking about the problem and in comes the solution. It's that really open state. Well, that's the same state that allows the deceased person to come through. Through all the clients that have come to you, have you discovered this space that lets us uh, communicate kind of out of our human reality? There is a technique that I use called induced after-death communication. It's, it uses a trauma technique called EMDR, which is eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. I know that's a mouthful. That's a well-validated trauma treatment that's used all over the world. This particular treatment really goes after the grief, and it, that's about 90%. That's the heavy lifting of the treatment. You're really processing the deep grief with this trauma treatment. It's very structured. You do it over the course of two days, two sessions, maybe two hours each. And you're really just chasing the grief. If the anger comes up, you don't really focus on it. You only focus on fear and sadness. And of course, there's a lot of emotions people have, but sadness seems to be the biggest block. When enough is cleared, let's say it's a 10 when you start in terms of intensity, you bring those down to twos and ones or zeros the different circumstances that the person is really bereft about, then you have them focus on the deceased and communicate with them, and then you move their eyes again, and then you have them become very receptive. Anyway, it's a process that works about 75% of the time. Again, I just think what happens is when you really process the sadness, the deep sadness, it creates a psychological state which is easier to bridge with non-physical states. Does that make sense? It does. Through those two hours, how do you follow the clients to go through the grieving process? Well, you're right. There's a lot of tracking that goes on. That's why it's got to be done in person because, you know, I'm moving their eyes for two hours. It's not, you know, every single second because you're, talking about it and tracking in between what the person's thinking, what's coming up. But it, there is there is some subtlety to it because the eyes, 
will also show you if the person's kind of stuck. The eyes will sometimes get this little hitch or little glitch in it, and then you have to sort of smooth that out by the way that you move your hands. It's, it's, it's actually pretty fascinating. It's pretty nuanced and detailed, but it's really effective, very effective. And even people who don't have the after-death communication that they desire, a lot of times they get so much relief from doing the grief work. When you said the eyes move, is it left to right or up and down? It's left to right, yeah. So it's a horizontal. So it'd be, you know, I'd hold up my two fingers and I'd be moving it back and forth and they're following. And what that is, is that's bilateral stimulation. And so a lot of times when something's overwhelming, somebody's had an overwhelming experience, it's what I call a bottom of the brain experience. They're overwhelmed. It's like a flashbulb experience where they're kind of overwhelmed and they don't process the whole thing and it sort of just stays in their body mind kind of in a frozen state. And when you have someone go back to what's most disturbing and focus on what the thought is, what the emotions are, where they feel it in their body, and then you move their eyes, what happens is you start to stimulate that person's ability to process the information that really hasn't been digested. After the process, how do you know the if the client has fully digested the grief process? Let's say um, I'm working with somebody and their husband had a heart attack in front of them, collapsed, stopped breathing, and died like a sudden death. And I say to them, what's the worst moment and they say, when he fell to the ground, I tried to revive him and I couldn't and I felt so helpless. Okay, go to that moment, pull up that picture. What's the emotion? Helplessness, terror. Where do you feel the helplessness? I feel the helplessness in my throat. Where do you feel the terror? I feel it in my heart and my stomach. Okay, how strong is the helplessness? It's a 10. Okay, how strong is the terror? It's a 10 plus. Okay, pull up the picture. Pull up the feeling of helplessness. Notice where you feel it in your body. Pull up the feeling of terror. Notice where you feel it in your body. Then I start to move their eyes. The instruction is as if you're on a train watching all the scenery go by. Their job is just to notice the scenery that goes by Notice their body, their thoughts, their feelings as I'm moving their eyes and pay attention to what's most prominent. So how I know is either the activation and the intensity will either go up, it'll go down, or it'll, it, it won't move. And based on that, I know what to do next, right? So if it goes up, sometimes it'll go up before it comes down. But you just keep moving the eyes and what you're doing is it's, it's very much like replicating REM sleep. In REM sleep, we're processing the day and we're consolidating memory. And it very much does something very similar. It helps the person process through rather than just stay stuck with their original reaction. I hope that makes sense. You mentioned about your mother being psychic. Were those abilities passed on to you and your siblings? 
I wouldn't say my mother was psychic. She came from a family that had psychic abilities. So her grandmother and some of her grandmother's sisters were psychic. I mean, there's some legendary stories about that. I would say I'm intuitive, but I wouldn't call myself psychic. Phyllis is psychic, the the woman who you mentioned earlier. I would say when I'm working on people doing energy healing, sometimes I get information about them or I can feel where in their body something's stuck so I tend to get my information either I just know something or I feel it in my own body however there's times I'm working on somebody and I don't get any information at all I'm just kind of working what I would call blind I'm just having faith and allowing the energy to come through me and let the energy work and there's other times I get really distinct information. So it's kind of interesting with that. So I consider myself intuitive as opposed to psychic. My sisters, they're not interested in any of this. They just kind of think it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> and I still love them, but you know, it's not, they don't really see much value in any of this. They just think it's, well, one's a professor for one thing. So everything for her is very much linear and logic. And so I live in a different world really in that regard. When you work with clients through energy, are you also focusing the the mental side as well? I work with the psychological issues, yes. We're body minds. I find many, many physical maladies have psychological and or karmic origins. Many. I find very few things are simply just physical, but there are. I mean, we have things that they're just physical issues, period. But there's a lot of times there's so many psychological contributions to how physicality expresses. I call it issues in our tissues. (laughs) We've got issues in our tissues. (laughs) And that's everybody. Because if you're in a physical body, you've got issues. (laughs) Kind of the way it is. You just described your method for trauma and, and grief. When someone comes to you and they want to understand the the psychological aspect with the energy, how does the mind aspect fit into the understanding of the psychological, the the physical, the mental, and the spiritual in one? It is interesting with energy work, how do I deal with that person's psyche, you know, sort of their understanding of what's going on. Is that what you're asking? Yes, that's it. Usually with energy work, unless somebody is already metaphysical and they really just know that's how they like to work, with the exception of that kind of client, a lot of times I would do energy work in the context of therapy. If you were like a camera in the room, it would look pretty traditional, look like pretty traditional therapy where we're trying to get to the root of the issue. You know, we may do EMDR, we may do some other kinds of activities to help the person heal. A lot of times the root is lack of self-love. It's it's just pandemic how much we don't love ourselves and how we feel alone. So we may be dealing with the roots of that in, in sort of a traditional way, but at some point I might say, would you like me to do some energy work on you to see if we can move this in in a way that we haven't. And so then I do the energy work and then they can observe 
do I feel any different? Do I feel freer? Do I feel less encumbered? Do I feel less of that repeating thought that I'm no good or whatever it is that they're maybe judging themselves about? If they feel that or they have a sense that it has had an effect, then often they like to do more of it, right? So a lot of times when I do energy work, it is already in the context of a therapeutic relationship. But for instance, tonight, I'll go volunteer at a church here where they do hands-on healing, and I'll just show up and I'll do hands-on healing for two hours. And people coming there already have a belief system that they're open to this kind of healing. So they'll come in, they'll sit down, I'll say, what would you like me to work on? And they'll tell me, and then I'll work on them. So there's sort of different kinds of people that come to me. But if they're coming to me for a psychological problem, then I would start working in a fairly traditional way to get to know them, get to know their symptoms, their history, and all that. I would just have them sit down and start channeling energies, <laughs> um, unless they come to me specifically for that. How does belief session the whole human uh, psychology? Why, that's a deep question. That's a really deep question. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer this two ways. So as far as the induced after-death communication, that process I described earlier for helping people make a connection to their deceased loved one, belief does not seem to play a role in that, which I think is fascinating. You can have people who are non-believers have an experience, and you can have somebody who is a fanatic believer in life after death who doesn't have one. In fact, the research on this method seems to show that want, it's almost like wanting it too much seems to interfere, including the therapist. So sometimes in between when the person's processing, I have to doodle <laughs> to keep my mind off of, I want this to really happen for them. Because that enthusiasm, not, not enthusiasm, but sort of, I don't know, there's something about that vibration that it seems to interfere. So I think that's fascinating. The two guys that spontaneously discovered this, they were already EMDR therapists, but they were working with veterans, and they were doing EMDR, which is, like I said, a more traditional, well-validated, well-researched treatment. But these guys kept having spontaneous experiences with the people they were grieving. And these guys, the two therapists I'm talking about, were scientifically minded enough that they said something's going on here that this keeps happening. And even though these two men are not believers, they're not into all this afterlife stuff, they saw that there was something really happening. And of course now they understand there really is such a thing. But I think it's fascinating that two kind of basically atheists <laughs> discovered this, this technique spontaneously doing another technique, and then they refined it. So to answer your question, I think in some cases, belief, it doesn't matter whether you believe or don't believe, you can have experiences that you don't intend to have that are healing. That said, I do think our attitudes... Um, the amount of love we feel, the amount of generosity we feel, the amount of openness we feel, those are all vibrations that have an effect 
on our psyche. They have an effect on our health. They have an effect on other people around us. There's a lot of research that shows that when we're in states of love and we're stay in states of um, appreciation or even awe at beauty, that it puts the heart into a very smooth S wave. And that's a very organizing uh, frequency, which has the effect of putting the heart rate, blood pressure, pulse, brain waves all into sync. And of course, when those things are in sync, the body works much more smoothly. We also know that, that our electromagnetic field is about 12 feet around us and it has the effect of having a very organizing effect on people around us so what does that say to me what that says is nature is slightly tipped towards the positive meaning in positive states we have the capacity to influence ourselves and other people and changing their frequency Whereas if it's more chaotic, like we're frustrated or tense or angry, that's a very disorganized heart rate variability and it isn't organizing for ourselves or other people around us. So to me what that says is yes, being more kind, more open, more appreciative has an overall positive effect on us. So does emotion also play an effect with this? I think so. I mean, there's a lot of research on this. That people that are angry, they have more heart problems. People that are resentful and victim-y have more problems with cancer. I mean, yes, yes. That's not to say that we can't get angry, and that's not to say, you know, that if you get resentful that you're going to drop dead or something. I don't mean to imply that. Everyone has you know, a spectrum of human emotion, and we need to have that. And anger is very motivating. If it's channeled in the right direction, we have anger specifically in our, what would you call it, sort of spectrum of experience because it has survival value. Anger helps us with boundaries. Anger helps to motivate us past obstacles. So these emotions, sadness, joy, you know, even the negative, so-called negative emotions have value. It's just if you get too stuck, it's not so great. With someone who's studied the brain and looked at it through uh, the human and probably through case studies, can the brain block certain memories? Yes, absolutely. There's repression and denial, and in fact, young children, they don't have a lot of defenses. You know, when you're really little and something egregious or completely overwhelming happens to you, you know, you lose a parent, you're in a war-torn country, you know, whatever it is that's really overwhelming, kids can't rationalize. They don't have the defenses we have as adults. Um, and so one of the few defenses kids have is either, and it's not even conscious, it just sort of happens is repression. They, they just sort of put it away. It can't even be digested exactly. But with that, a lot of times there it sits, you know, in the body-mind. And I have worked with people who have certain phobias or irrational fears. And then as we work, sometimes there's something very deep that they've forgotten. You know, a rape, let's say, or 
you know, something really violent. Or I had one woman who, at one and a half, her brother put her in a toy box and sat on it. And while as adults we look at that and think, big deal, it was probably for 20 seconds or something. But to a little kid, they don't know how long they're going to be in there, right? She thought she was going to die. You know, when we processed that with the MDR, her her claustrophobia went away. But she hadn't remembered that. And, um, you know, I had somebody else who had to have surgery, I think, at three. And, you know, her parents had to leave her in the hospital so she could have the surgery. And, you know, she had a phobia, too. And once that came up and we processed it, phobia went away. So, yes, yes, we can completely put stuff away. I've had experiences with that myself where I've forgotten something. And then because memory is associative, this is, this is quite fascinating. It's like a chain. So you can be processing something with EMDR. Let's say uh, you're afraid of dogs or something. And we're processing it. And I have a recent memory where I'm taking a walk and, and there's a dog behind a, a fence. And the dog can't get over the fence but I'm terrified and I want to get over this terror. And so let's say I do the processing and as I'm doing it, maybe I then remember as I'm processing, oh yeah, that's right. I was three and a dog ran up to me and knocked me down. Didn't bite me, you know, but it was bigger than me, knocked me down and I thought I was going to get eaten, right? So yes, Sometimes in the process of dealing with a fear in present time, if you really start to process it, sometimes you'll find an earlier root, which is repressed. You just don't remember. You don't have access to it until you follow sort of the chain of emotion. Yes. Long answer to a short question. <laughs> with the science where we understand the the body and we we kind of think the mind is still a mystery in the brain what's your view on it as far as i'm concerned the body's pretty mysterious too <laughs> so i think there's a lot we don't know but you know we are learning more all the time and it is fascinating i really think it's one i mean the longer i do energy work the more i think the body and mind you know, we have, I think we have a false dichotomy, you know, thinking that it's the mind and it's the body. They really are one. And, but that you're right, there's a lot to still understand about the brain. I think the great mystery is the heart, actually. I think the heart is a much more fascinating organ than we give it credit for. It, it is the organ, I was, as I was saying earlier, that if you go into these various states of love, appreciation, and awe completely can sink the brain. It's, it's amazing to me. Why the harsh? Because of its electromagnetic field. It has the greatest electromagnetic field in the body, greater than the brains. And so it, to me, is fascinating to know that all spiritual teachers are saying the same thing, you know, that we're one. It's all about love and loving yourself and loving other people and seeing the oneness. And so isn't it interesting that when we go into these states, it is absolutely concretely measurable that it affects your heart rate variability. It's what I was talking about earlier where it goes into a very smooth S wave. 
which is very organizing for your whole system, including your brain. When you say the S wave, what's that? It's just uh, what would be called a coherent wave. Your heart, if you measure it, has um, what's called a heart rate variability, how it beats, and rather it beats kind of in a irregular, desynchronous pattern or a very smooth pattern. And a very smooth pattern, it looks like an S, you know, a wave that looks like an S. That, like I said, is that coherent pattern that's very healthy. The body is much more at ease when you're in that state. And it, like I said earlier, affects people around you. Like they've done studies where people go into these states of love or appreciation and they sustain it. And it's, it even affects animals. Like if there's a cat there or a dog, it'll put them into. <laughs> so just think about that. If I'm coherent, I'm in that state of love. I'm in a state of appreciation. I affect people around me, even if they don't realize it. That's a beautiful thing. That's powerful. With my heart, I can affect people around me. It's amazing. The brain doesn't do that exactly. It, not, not the same way. I can't think myself into love. It's a feeling that you have to have. And that's the great power of the heart. You don't have to be educated or have a PhD from Oxford, you know, to be able to feel love and affect your life and other people's lives. I'm not down on the brain. Don't, don't get me wrong. I love studying and I love the brain. <laughs> we can't do without it. But I think the, the heart is underrated in terms of an organ. <laughs> Donna, who inspires you to do what you do? lots of different people. I think what most inspires me is when I hear about a healing method that helps people suffer less. I think I'm very touched by suffering in the world. There's a lot of suffering and anything that we can do to ease suffering I think is good to learn and so that's what prompts me to keep learning is when I hear about something, oh have you heard about this? And then I'll go and I'll study it. And, you know, there's some things I study that I don't do anymore, and there's new things I'm studying that I'm experimenting with, but it's lots of different people. I admire uh, sort of the explorer spirit. I've had many good teachers, many good teachers. When people come and go from your clinic, does their energy affect you in any way through their story or experiences? I think I'm very open and touched in the moment. Like I said, I think I'm an empath, meaning I sense people's emotions through my second chakra. But I think over the years, I've become much better at, um, I think through my own meditation and my own spiritual work, I clear myself a lot. Not that I think I'm really taking on other people's stuff, but you know, if we get too identified with somebody else's pain, you're right, it can sort of drag you down. And so having my own spiritual practice is really important. And exercise, exercise is really important way for me to de-stress and shake off the heaviness of the world. Because when I exercise, I dance, so I feel very free. I feel like a child, and that's a good thing. So yes, I can be effective, but I take pretty good care of myself in that way. I think as a young woman, I sponged everything. <laughs> I just always sponging everyone's pain. That's hard. Do you find it hard being an empath doing this work? 
I think it would be the same that that I said earlier that I've learned in my old age (laughs) that I have to have a routine, you know, that's really about self-care. And I teach self-care to almost all my clients before we get into anything traumatic. I insist that they have at least five things that they can do at any time to calm and soothe themselves. Because it's like going into surgery with no uh, anesthesia. How can you take people into their deepest pain with no relief? No, that's not right. That's cruel. So that's a big thing is to teach people self-soothing before we do any hard work you know, on the pain. If you could sit down and have a, a psychoanalysis of yourself, the way that clients come to you, what would you discover from yourself? I think my shadow is, you know, I have to watch my own ego uh, in terms of that kind of identity where I feel like I have to heal everything and everybody. That's God's job, not mine. I mean, I'm not God. And so I think what I have to watch in myself is, I have to watch the line between enthusiasm versus thinking I I have to control everything. You know what I mean? Like, I, it can go overboard if I feel overly responsible, is what I'm saying, which is ego. So I would say what I would see is there's a person in there at times who feels like she has to heal everything, and I can't can't nobody can heal everything so yes I have to watch that in myself thus the self-care time for myself that kind of thing having fun you know the way children can be free and they they have this energy of where kind of something I don't care as adults we kind of are more serious um uh-huh. yeah. is is there a way of kind of applying the, that childlike energy to adults Well, I think so. It's finding the stuff that makes you laugh and smile and that you want to do not for any end product, but just because you enjoy it, not because you're trying to get paid or (laughs) produce a product. But, you know, kids, when they roll down a hill, they don't roll down the hill because they're trying to get somewhere. (laughs) They roll down the hill for the experience of it. And it's sort of like that. You know, are there things that that you like to do just because of the experience of it? So yes, I think I think everyone has that natural child within them and I think it's a wonderful question because I feel like a lot of times we're so goal oriented that that poor little child self really gets left behind. And I think it's so important that we we express that. That's the experiencer. That's the experimenter. That's, the, <laughs> that's just joy, for joy's sake. And that's why I dance, actually. It isn't to get the steps right. It, it's, yes, that can be fun. But it's really just for movement and freedom and just how free I feel when I dance. If there was one aspect or what you experienced in your own story or through clients to share one person, either me or someone on the street, what would it be? Trust yourself. Trust yourself. Trust that there's wisdom there. Trust your intuition. When something 
really attracts you, gets your interest to sort of follow that and see where that takes you. Because I think that's your deep self. That's where we sort of started this conversation. That's sort of your deep self calling you. And that's what I would say. Trust yourself. Trust those things that really kind of get your attention and you're like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, I kind of like that. And that may take you to the next thing. So I would say follow the breadcrumbs. <laughs> uh, Donna, where can we find you? Uh, I have a website. It's just my name, Donna Morish, M-O-R-R-I-S-H.com. You can find me that way. And there, there's descriptions of the different therapies I do. But it also has my contact information. That's probably the easiest way to find me. And I do do a lot of work via Skype. Is there any events that uh, that you have coming up for 2017? I don't have one right this second. I just finished doing a weekend of healing. I'll probably do some more of that, but that would be up on my site when I do it. I work with two other channels, and there's three of us. We call ourselves One Light. There's three of us, but there's one light coming through us. One of them is a sound healer, language of light, and the other one has a lot of contact with off-planet beings and then I do vortex so we often work on people together well we're probably going to do a few clinics so meaning that people come and with whatever's going on with them whether it's physical or psychological or karmic and they lay on the table and we each work on whatever they've asked us to work on and in the end we talk to them and tell them what we got what we saw what we worked on it's a lot of bang for the buck. <laughs> Let's put it that way. They they get a lot because there's three of us energy healers working on one person at a time. So that'll probably be the next thing. That might be sometime later this summer because we just got done doing a whole weekend of that. Donna, I want to say thank you very much for coming on the show and uh, sharing your story, your journey, your experiences, and your knowledge. I appreciate you taking the time and... Uh, lovely to be with you and I wish you luck on your journey and thank you for bringing metaphysical psychological and spiritual information to the public it's a wonderful thing that was excellent good thank you you're, you're welcome thank you for spending the time to listen to the show if you want to learn more check out sansit.com that's s-a-n-c-i-t dot com Join Sanseat Group on Facebook and contact us if you have any questions. Until next time, have an awesome day and rock on.